for bringing us into the spirit of thanksgiving. Um, I must confess, um, when I was thinking about preaching this Sunday, I was just thinking about Isaiah. Uh, but I appreciate Steve as he has led us in these great hymns and the great background information about these hymns and why they were written and how they were written and so forth. And, and it, it's, it's, it's a real blessing to all of us. And uh, I'm going to try preaching without the stool this morning, so just, just so y'all won't get nervous. Um, and um, if I fall over, you can come up here and prop me up. But it's good to be in the Lord's house this morning. Um, last Sunday, we preached from Isaiah chapter 41. And uh, so... I naturally went to chapter 42 and uh, discovered some wonderful truths there, and I trust that it will be a special blessing to us as we study this passage today. Uh, God's chosen servant. We're going to be reading Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 9, and I'll be reading out of the ESV translation for a simple reason. Uh, I normally use the New King James, but it used the word indeed, and I like behold. And so we're, we're going to read out of the ESV today. Would you stand with me as we read? Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Let's go to the Lord in another word of prayer, and I'm going to ask Brother Dennis Adams if he will to lead us in this prayer, please.
bless us in this time. In your holy name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. As you can easily see where I got the subject for the sermon, behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. That's verse 1. So God's chosen servants. Let's look and consider what God has to say to us from this passage of Scripture. This week we're going to celebrate Thanksgiving. And uh, that means it's not long until Christmas. And our Scripture today is not what we think of as a traditional Thanksgiving or Christmas story. However, it is a prophecy that reveals to us a wonderful gift that God sent into the world so that we could know him as our Heavenly Father. The gift that he gave to us was, in this chapter, called the servant, the chosen servant. And uh, we know from this scripture and from the chapters in Isaiah chapter 40 through 66, uh, that this servant was none other than the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that as we study this, we will be blessed and made to rejoice because the servant, the Son, obeyed the Father and accomplished the mission for which he was sent into the world. Got five points this morning. The first one is the servant's relationship. Again, verse 1, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. Now, Isaiah, in his, this uh, book of Isaiah, uh, over and over again, makes a comparison between Jehovah, Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of the universe, the creator of everything, and compares him with the idol gods that were worshipped in Isaiah's day. The idol gods that caused God to pour out his judgment and take the people away into captivity for 70 years. And uh, chapter 41, verse 24, Isaiah said, Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. And then in verse 29 of chapter 41. Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. That is Isaiah's description of the idol gods, the false gods that the people were worshiping and for which they were going to experience the judgment of God. Now, for us here in America, we perhaps have some difficulty understanding what the, all the fuss is about. Now, my wife doesn't know that I did this, so uh, y'all, somebody hold her down. Um, but uh, I've, I told you about... Uh, and, and we gave an introduction through a, a short video clip of this God. And uh, I finally found him. He was hiding in our garage in a, in a cardboard box. Now, 
This is nothing but a chunk of wood, okay? As you can see from the bottom, it's carved and, uh, into this shape, and uh, then it's decorated with imitation jewels and imitation gold and so forth. And yet, this is a God that millions upon millions of people in this world worship. They worship him, the Buddhists uh, worship him, uh, as one of their gods, uh, the Taoists worship him as the god who is able to uh, cast out demons. Uh, the uh, poor worship him as the god of wealth and prosperity. That if they pray to him, that he will help them to get make get rich, and so forth. So uh, I'm going to put him away now, if y'all don't mind, and. Uh, we won't worry about him anymore. But uh, that is the kind of thing that Isaiah was talking about. And uh, this God is not alive. It's just a dead idol. And uh, so Isaiah is telling the people they have a choice. God very clearly makes his point. Regardless of how good the craftsman is who shapes the idol, it is nothing and the craftsman is nothing. And uh, before our first furlough back in 1966, I went down to the God store and I bought this God. I don't remember how much I paid for for this God, but uh, I used it as part of our display when we were on furlough visiting churches. And... um, And so uh, God makes the point that this kind of God is worthless and helpless. The way in which God proves this is that the one he sends, his servant, our Lord, is not a dead idol but a powerful servant and specifically one who is sent by the true God who speaks of things that have not yet happened. An example in the book of Isaiah. God specifically, and by the way, Isaiah is a prophecy. uh, And it's an amazing book. Uh, The last chapters 40 through 66 is almost totally poetic in form. And uh, Isaiah, that probably makes Isaiah one of the best poets in the history of the world. But uh, in this book, he specifically speaks of King Cyrus 200 years before he is even born. Later on in Isaiah's prophecy, he speaks of King Cyrus who was God's servant. In other words, God used Cyrus to accomplish his purposes. Not that King Cyrus knew the Lord, uh, but that God used him as his servant to accomplish his goals and purposes. And so he is the chosen one, Jesus Christ, the Lord. And so here in this chapter, we have a remarkable picture of the Lord Jesus that was given to the prophet Isaiah by God himself. The word behold that you find in the beginning is used to identify a special person. 
Here God says that there is a servant with whom I have a special relationship. He is God's servant, God's chosen servant, and the servant in whom God delights. God said more than once, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And so we see here the one choosing was the heavenly father. And uh, the one chosen, God the son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, particularly in the gospel of John, over and over again, it speaks about the fact that Jesus was sent by the Father to come into this world on a special mission. And uh, so John eight twenty nine says, And he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. And uh, in our chapter here, he is called the servant. The servant is one who obeys commands, and does the will and work of the master. And so Jesus Christ, on his earthly ministry, obeyed the Father's will and went forth to do the work of the Father. He was the chosen servant of the Father. Now, in these verses that we've read this morning, we see the resource of the servant, the servant's resource. And uh, first of all, there was the power of the Spirit. Uh, Jesus Christ was the only perfect man who has ever lived. He was the only man who's ever been totally, completely, absolutely filled with the Spirit of God. And so uh, in these verses we've read this morning, he says, I have put my Spirit upon him. Uh, Matthew chapter 3, verse 16 when Jesus had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. Isaiah 42, verse 1b. He said, I put my Spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. In John chapter 3, verses 34 and 35. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God does not give the Spirit by measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Now, here he says he does not give the, word, the Spirit by measure, which simply means that Jesus had all of the Holy Spirit in him and on him and carrying him through all of his earthly ministry. And so... Uh, the first resource that Jesus had while he was here on earth and doing the work of God and carrying out the mission that God had given him was that he had the power of the Spirit with him. With him. But the second resource of the servant, he said, Behold my servant whom I uphold. And Jesus, while he was here, had the continual, the constant presence of God with him. And uh, Matthew 3, 17, and suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And again, Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And I believe that here we have evidence of the Trinity. We, in these verses, the I and the my, I, 
I have chosen my servant, and so forth, I believe, refers to the Father. And then the Son is my servant that I have chosen. And then the Spirit, I have put my Spirit upon him. And so Jesus Christ had the resources to come to this earth to fulfill the mission that God had given him. And we'll look at that, what that mission was. The servant's rescue, point number three. The servant's rescue, verse 1b. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Verse 4. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And verse 3b. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Do you see a repetition here? It becomes obvious that in the beginning of this chapter, the repeated use of the word justice, he will bring forth justice, that this was the primary goal, mission, and function of Jesus Christ when he came into the world. Now, I have to alert you to the fact that the world's definition of justice is not the same as God's definition of justice. Uh, in fact, um, one of the things I, I still haven't really grasped this term that is I've, I've heard used quite a bit lately, the woke generation. Um, and what is the woke generation? Well, it's a political term originating in the United States referring to a perceived awareness of issues concerning social justice and racial justice. Okay? So that's where a large percentage of our population here in America is focused on. They want social justice and racial justice. Then I discovered that there's another group, I don't know exactly what you would call them, but a group of Congress people. They have organized this group like the Tea Party and the Republican Party and, and some others, but they, they've called, it, called themselves the Justice Democrats. And uh, when they organized the Justice Democrats, they published 25 principles that they wanted to see accomplished and enacted. I'm not going to read you the whole 25. I, I, I just picked out five of these principles that the Justice Democrats uh, want to accomplish. Number one, enacting a federal jobs guarantee which would promise all Americans a job paying $15 per hour plus benefits. Number two, ensuring universal education as a right, meaning free schooling through college. Number three, ensuring universal health care as a right. Number four, expanding background checks on firearms and banning high-capacity magazines and assault weapons. Number five, 
funding Planned Parenthood and other contraceptive and abortion services and recognizing reproductive rights. Now, that's the idea of a lot of people about justice. It is self-designated principles of justice which are totally skewed and wrong. But the definition of divine justice because in these verses that we've read this morning Verse 1, I put my spirit upon him who will bring forth justice to the nations. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And so it becomes obvious that the goal, the mission of the chosen servant when God sent him into the world was to establish justice in the world. Now, what is this justice, this divine justice? Well, let me go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. The Bible says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We were created in the image of God, which means that we were created in order to have fellowship with God Throughout eternity. But unfortunately, God was dispossessed of his most treasured creation, Adam and Eve, and all of their descendants, which includes all of us here today. Through their sin, Adam and Eve, through their sin and rebellion of God's law, they were no longer in harmony with the nature and character of God. They were separated from God. Divine justice. I want to read you a definition of divine justice. Uh, I found this in uh, a dictionary of Bible words by Lawrence Richards. Page 369 if you're interested. It says justice then is rooted in the very nature of God. And his character is the true norm or standard. All his acts are just and right, even those we may not be able to understand. And so when you talk about justice, you've got to align yourself with the character and the nature of God. And uh, sadly, the justice Democrats and uh, a lot of other people who are proclaiming they're seeking justice are way off base as far as true justice. And so when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, God's most treasured possession was destroyed, was taken away. And... Uh, if I might use a, uh, an illustration, I think in the past I've mentioned this, but uh, uh, 
we preachers are sometimes desperate to find good sermon illustrations. And so <clears throat> this might be one way of looking at it. Somewhere around 1996, Barbara and I made a trip to Yangon, Myanmar. It used to be called Rangoon, Burma. While there, uh, they have this huge handicraft market. And uh, so, naturally, you know Barbara, she has got to go. And so, while we're there, there we found a man who was selling some Chinese blue and white vases. And uh, Barbara's always had a love for Chinese blue and white pottery. So, we stopped and I began to examine uh, the vase. And as I took, turned it up and I read on the bottom, it says in Chinese, Da Ming Wan Li Nian Zhi. Da Ming means the Ming Dynasty of ancient China. Uh, well, not so ancient. Uh, mid-1300 A.D. to mid-1600 A.D. was the period of the Ming Dynasty in China. But it was a period where they had very valuable and beautiful pottery. And uh, one of these uh, genuine vases can be very expensive. <clears throat> and so Daming, as I said, means the Ming Dynasty. Wanlinian means the year or the time period in which this vase was manufactured. And um, we couldn't believe our good fortune because they were asking only $10 for a Ming Dynasty vase that may be worth $10,000. Wow. And uh, so we purchased it, took it back home to Taiwan, and now it is, well, it used to be. Because the sad story is, is, is this. You can imagine our displeasure when, while we were living in Louisville, a thief broke into our house and stole our Ming vase. We, we reported it to the police, and after a few days, the police called us and told us that the lead they had paid off and the thief was found and they assured us that justice would be carried out. But then we asked them, did you recover our Ming vase? And the officer said, unfortunately not. But we do have the thief in custody. Then we said, we really don't care about that so much. We want our Ming vase back. We want what was stolen returned. You see, justice in the policeman's point of view had been achieved. The robber had been captured and was in custody. But it did not make right what was wrong the return of our missing Ming vase. From the Thornton's point of view, the justice was not served. 
So justice in the biblical sense means a transformation. When God tells Isaiah that the servant whom he loves, he is the one who will carry out divine justice. He will restore to God all that was stolen when Adam sinned. He will restore the full image of God in man. And by the way, that's just a sermon illustration. Uh, the, everything was true except this being stolen. It's still in our living room. But the reality that God's treasure of all of God's creation, the thing that he treasured most was the man and woman that he had created in his own image so that the purpose of God was around the world, seven billion plus people on the face of planet earth today, that each one is a reflector and image of God shining in the world, except for one tragedy. For most people, that image has been all but totally destroyed. They're just the remnants there. So justice in the divine sense, the justice from God's point of view, means that there must be a transformation. When God tells Isaiah that the servant whom he loves, he is the one who will carry out divine justice. He will restore to God all that was stolen when Adam sinned. He will restore the full image of God in man. And uh, like the Thorntons, who could have had their mean vase stolen, but they wanted it back, God wants his image back. He wants his people to perfectly reflect his image, his nature, and his character to the world. But if this is to happen, God must send his son to do it. Only Jesus is the right man for the job. Only Jesus can pull it off. Jesus is the chosen servant whom God will send to rescue us from sin and separation and a broken, distorted image of God in our hearts. And so, point number four, the servant's restoration. Our Lord came to earth with a mission. And he will not stop until it is accomplished. Until he exclaims from the cross, it is finished. He will not let up or relax or rest. He is driven by a divine purpose. He will restore God's image of God in our hearts. That's what he came to do. Notice how he does it. In these scriptures that we read this morning from Isaiah 42, he does it gently, lovingly, but relentlessly. He patiently pursues until he has 
his man or his woman or his boy or his girl. Isaiah says he is tender in his care of those who have lost the image of God. Jesus doesn't have to raise his voice and cry aloud and do all these funny things that we expect from Benny Hinn or some others, but he comes quietly. And humbly to bring us back to God. When he comes across one of God's people who is broken, he doesn't step on them or say, Why have you acted this way? Why have you done these sinful things that cause you to be broken? What were you thinking? No, he cares for the weak and the wounded. Verse 3 says, a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Yes, that spark of God, that likeness of the image of God that was in our hearts, is just a faintly glimmering spark, like a faintly burning wick. How does Jesus go about restoring lost sinners? How does he go about bringing the redemptive justice God desires? He does so one image bearer at a time. One lost person at a time. And yes, we are all broken. We're all bruised reeds and smoldering wicks. But Jesus is the divine redeemer who takes broken people with barely any image of God left and heals them and adds fuel to the smoldering wick and ignites the flame of God's image once again. That's what the servant, Jesus Christ, came to do. In order to redeem us, Jesus will not be discouraged Or defeated until he has established justice in the earth. By transforming us into new creatures in Christ Jesus. So that God's image in us has been restored. That is the purpose for which he came into the world. Point number five, we're almost there. The servant's reward. The servant's reward. Verses five through nine, let me read these verses again. Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out and who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people of it, on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare before they spring forth. 
I tell you of them. And so every lost soul that comes back to God through faith in Jesus Christ, they're regenerated, they're born again. That image of God in their hearts is restored. Now, I know that sometimes we look at one another and we say, that doesn't look very much like God to me. But we're on a journey. And the servant is leading us on that journey so that we can become transformed from image to image like the likeness of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And I think of the book of Luke talking about the lost sheep. When the lost sheep that was found and brought back, there was rejoicing in heaven. And yes, God rejoices. Jesus rejoices. The Holy Spirit rejoices over every soul that comes to know him. Jesus, God's chosen servant, had an earthly ministry of restoring the bruised and broken. Those who were both physically and spiritually shattered by sin. Because of this, he rejoices. Verse 10, last after our scripture today, says, Sing to the Lord a new song, his praises from the end of the earth. Now I want to conclude this sermon today by looking at Matthew chapter 12. Here Matthew gives us an example of how Jesus proved to be the servant that Isaiah wrote about in Isaiah chapter 42. We see a bruised reed and a smoldering wick in this passage. And we see Jesus taking this poor man by the hand, as it were, and redeeming a poor lost sinner, just as he did the day that each of us came to know him as our personal Savior. So reading Matthew chapter 12, verses 9 through 21, again from the ESV. He went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there, with a withered hand, and they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. So then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. Verse 17, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice on the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. 
until he brings justice to victory. And his, in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Do you see here in this example of Jesus' earthly ministry, how tenderly he restored the man with the withered hand. He said, stretch out your hand. And it was healed. That man had to have that faith that Jesus was going to do something wonderful in his life. Jesus was born to be God with us. He was born to redeem us. He was born to care for us, to restore us, and to give back to us the image that we had all lost because of sin. All because Jesus, who was the brightness of the glory and the very image of God, shone forth into this world. And through faith in him, we're born again, saved by his grace. And Brother Steve comes to lead us in a closing hymn. I pray that if you're here under the sound of my voice and you need to come and accept the Lord as your Savior, that you will do that today. Brother Steve. Hymn number 382. Would you stand, please? Yeah. Mm-hmm.